The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so it's time for the return of my good friend for his weekly visit, Dr Peter Hammond. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. title of today's show that Peter has got for us is The Real Story Behind the Olympics. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this one? Well, um, thank you very much, Andrew. We are, of course, um, in Olympic era. They've just finished Olympics, and there's, there's quite a lot of uh, good things uh, with those uh, people who really made a stand and uh, uh, gave all honor and glory to the Lord. Um, from South Africa, we're really proud of our Tatiana Schoenmaker, who not only won gold in the women's breaststroke uh, 200 meters, but she actually broke the world's record, which is e- extraordinary. And she's a dedicated Christian uh, who we know here in South Africa. And so Tatiana's uh, testimony and how she she has said publicly that the uh, feeling of winning Olympic gold is nothing compared to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and the joy she feels every time she worships God in church and that God is greater than any Olympics and so on. And oh, she said she intended to give all the glory to the Lord, whether she won or not. And on her swim cap, she's got Soli Dio Gloria, solely to the glory of God, and a, a, a fish symbol uh, for identifying herself as a Christian, a very good Christian witness. And there's quite a lot of very brave, bold Christians who've been seeking to testify at the Olympics, and we are grateful for that. But... Um, we need to know something about the really hideous um, pagan background to the Olympics and how the politics of boycotts and how the COVID cult masquerade is, is coming into it and the role of performance-enhancing drugs. There's, there's a lot of scandals and there's a lot of politics and there's a lot of the New World Order agenda in Olympics. For example, bread and circuses, the whole idea of having games to distract the population while you steal their freedoms and undermine their liberty and hijack civilization. And uh, I think um, there's there's a lot to be gained by just looking at something that the whole world looks at uh, uh, with billions of people viewing Olympics. Well, um, what exactly is the real story behind the Olympics? And uh, I've noticed some articles and media networks and even the Olympic website making reference to the fact that in 
AD 393, the Roman Emperor Theodosius banned the Olympic Games for being too pagan. Obviously, they mentioned this in a very negative light, and some mentioned that under the emperor's direction, fanatical Christians closed and later tore down the Temple of Zeus built in Olympia. And so numerous reports have characterized Christians as anti-sports, even though many Christian athletes have excelled uh, in performing in these games, uh, such as our own South African Tatiana Skuman, uh, Skumaka, who's uh, given all glory to the Lord. But nevertheless, you see this continual anti-Christian, Christophobic edge in a lot of media reports. Now, it's worth noting that the original Olympians were professionals. They trained and competed full-time, and they profited royally from their wins, receiving huge amounts of cash and pensions and slaves as prizes. And the original Olympic Games were thoroughly pagan. Before the Olympic Games began, competitors went in procession to the village of Piera, and their pagan priests offered an animal sacrifice to Zeus, uh, one of the pagan Greek gods. Then the athletes participated in a religious ceremony of purification, and large numbers of animals were sacrificed before the colossal idol or statue of Zeus in the Olympia. And athletes swore allegiance to the Greek gods and specifically to Zeus. And the winners of the events visited the temple of Zeus to sacrifice to the gods. And the opening procession where priests carried glowing embers from the fire of the goddess Hestia were carried past spectators singing a hymn to Zeus. And arriving at the temple of Zeus, priests mounted the steps and lit the fire in the altar with the embers, and there they slaughtered and sacrificed a hundred bulls. And in the original Olympics, which started 3,000 years ago, by the way, married women were not allowed in the stands, and uh, a woman who flouted this prohibition risked being pitched head first off the nearby cliffs. Uh, in the original Olympics, men competed in the nude, and unmarried women were allowed to watch, and prostitutes from the Temple of Aphrodite were available to the winners as prizes. The original Olympics were incredibly violent. One of the most popular events of the ancient games was the four-horse chariot race, which resulted in multiple spills, accidents, gory pileups, and numerous participants were disfigured beyond recognition and crippled. The Olympics also featured a ferocious, no-holds-barred brawl known as the Pankration, a vicious mix of wrestling, boxing, street fighting, in which punches, kicks to the groin, kicks to the shoulder and ankle, dislocations and chokeholds were allowed. And one famous contestant specialized in breaking his opponent's fingers, and one Damazenos grabbed his uh, opponents and jabbed them with the finger so violently that he could pierce men's rib cages and yank out their intestines. All this to the cheers of the people on the stand. So it's not surprising that on the 24th of February, 391 AD, the Emperor Theodosius uh, began issuing a series of decrees that effectively outlawed all pagan sacrifices, divination and occult rituals, which you can understand how this led to the closing down of the original Olympics, because there was an awful lot of not just paganism, uh, but prostitution and uh, a hideous violence that was involved in, in the original Olympics. So no wonder it was closed down by a Christian emperor. And Christians were not hostile to sport in and of itself. There are many positive references to physical exercise and running the race in scripture. 1 Timothy 4 verse 8, for physical training is of some value. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, run in such a way that you attain the prize. 
everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating it. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself should not be disqualified from the prize. That's in 1 Corinthians 9. 2 Timothy 4 verse 7 says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. The third century minister Hippolytes listed 24 vocations forbidden to Christians in his book, Apostolic Traditions, and eight of these involved brutality, including cruelty to animals. Well, fortunately today, athletes are no longer required to sacrifice animals to Zeus and cruelty to animals and brutality to fellow contestants is no longer on the Olympic program, at least not officially. However, opening ceremonies in Olympics have incre increasingly included pagan imagery, dances, processions. For example, at the Atlanta Olympic Games in 1996, one reporter noted the spirit behind Zeus, the ancient god of Olympians, would never have been so pleased, never has so large a flock sung his hymn and cheered a sacred flame, never have so many people celebrate the timeless ritual involving earth-centered spirits and the tribes they inspire. And that was in the book, The Olympic Dream, written by Eric Kachos. Now, those who think the present Olympic Games have nothing to do with the mythological paganism of ancient Greece should consider the present-day Olympic hymn. Uh, I'm quoting what they sing. Ancient immortal spirit, chaste father of all that is beauty, grandeur, and truth, descending appear with thy presence, illumine the earth and the heavens, shine upon noble endeavors, wrought at the games, on track in the field, to thine temple, to thine worship, come all, O ancient eternal spirit. And uh, here's a description of the opening ceremony of the Athens Olympic Games in 2004. Remember, the most the Olympics were revived in 1896, and so uh, in Athens, and in 2004, it was back in Athens again, just a century or so later. A censure, half human, half horse, launched a javelin into the darkness, and a shaft of light arched through the air. Then the Greek god Eros descended over scantily clad lovers, sensually clutching and releasing each other as they frolicked in the water. And the procession of Greek history begins with float after float, culminating in a persona of the goddess Athena and a replica of the pantheon, religion. Over all this, Eros, the god of sexual love, hovers, as though the god of love is guiding the course of history. Now that's yeah, just one of these Olympic ceremonies, but... There's a lot of them that have gotten more and more pagan, very disturbing. And with the exception of the Russians, when they had the Winter Olympics, they, they had a Christian-centered uh, opening ceremony, but that's, that's a rare exception. Most are pre-pagan. Now, if the Olympics are just about sports, why are the increasingly pagan ceremonies glorifying ancient religions, all of which practiced animal sacrifices, human sacrifices, infanticide, slavery, brutal oppression of women, they just gloss that out and ignore that because, you know, mustn't let facts interfere with a good story. Now, there's a pervasive tendency to ignore our Christian heritage and how Christianity introduced a respect for life and liberty that was completely unknown before the coming of Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, the teachings of Christ halted infanticide, the killing of infants. It liberated women. It abolished slavery, inspired the first charities and relief organizations. Christianity created hospitals and established orphanages and founded schools and libraries and 
In ancient times, Christians built libraries and invented colleges and universities, dignified labor, converted to barbarians. In the modern era, Christian teaching has advanced science and elevated political, social, and economic freedoms, promoted justice, and provided the most inspiring and, in fact, the greatest inspirations for the most magnificent achievements in art, architecture, music, and literature. And so it's interesting how the Olympics seem to prefer paganism, although we're grateful for those faithful Christian witnesses like Tatiana who give glory to God and good for them. But what we're seeing is a pervasive prejudice against Christianity, which has been the most powerful agent in transforming society for the better part of 2,000 years. And no other religion or philosophy or teaching or nation or movement has so changed the world for the better as Christianity has done. Yet at the Olympics, billions of people worldwide choose to unite in pagan worship rather than acknowledging our creator and our savior and our eternal judge. And it's so important to recognize not just the paganism in the original ancient uh, Greek Olympics, but also the tremendous amount of um, drug enhancement. The use of performance enhancing drugs has been a major part of Olympics. And uh, in the early 20th century, many Olympic athletes used drugs for their athletic abilities. In 1904, um, gold medalist uh, Thomas Hicks uh, in the marathon was given um, performance-enhancing drugs by his coach, and it was all open. And at that time, there was no uh, prohibition against using uh, these drugs, even though it was known that <laughs> this is definitely not your natural uh, body involved here. Um, there was an Olympic death connected to performance-enhancing drugs in 1960 Rome Games. A Danish cyclist, um, uh, Knud Jensen, fell from his bicycle and died. The coroner inquiry discovered he was under the influence of amphetamines. And uh, by the mid-1960s, all sports federations started to ban the use of performance-enhancing drugs. And in 1967, the International Olympic Committee banned performance-enhancing drugs as well, <laughs> but it didn't stop it. Um, according to British journalist Andrew Jen Jennings, a KGB colonel stated that their officers, that's KGB agents, had posed as anti-doping authorities from the International Olympic Committee to undermine the doping tests and to ensure that the Soviet athletes were rescued with these tremendous efforts to enable them to still use performance-enhancing drugs and still qualify for the Olympics and uh, they infiltrate the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, in order to uh, cover up and ensure that the Soviet and East Bloc Warsaw Pact athletes, uh, who all use drugs, uh, were not um, in any way uh, disqualified by basically rigging the, the drugs, much like they rig elections these days. So in the 1980 Summer Olympics, the Moscow Olympics, an Australian study said there was hardly a medal winner in the Moscow Games there was certainly not any gold medal winner who was not on some sort of drug or another and usually several kinds of drugs. The Moscow Olympics should have been called the chemist's games. Uh, so that's, uh, that's one of the histories on it. Uh, documents obtained in 2016 revealed that the Soviet Union had plans for statewide doping systems in track and field in preparation for the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, but because the country decided to Olympic um, boycott of the LA Olympics, uh, that um, didn't get used. But they had steroid operations, all sorts of things for performance enhancement. And 
the uh, involvement of athletes uh, in uh, performance enhancing drugs is still huge. So uh, the first Olympic candidate to be uh, tested positive for performance enhancing drugs was the Swedish pentathlete in the 1968 Olympics, um, Hans Gunnar uh, Legenval, and he lost his bronze medal for uh, that use. And in 1988, some Olympics, there was Ben Johnson, who won the 100-meter dash, tested positive for Stanozolol and uh, was um, uh, uh, therefore disqualified after the fact. In 1999, the IOC formed the World Anti-Doping Agency to systematize the search and detection of performance-enhancing drugs. And so there was a sharp decrease in performance-enhancing drugs in the 2000-2002 Summer and Winter Olympics. Uh, But still, several medalists in weightlifting from the um, East Bloc countries, uh, particularly China, still lots of doping offenses. And during the Beijing Olympics, there were uh, uh, thousands of athletes who were tested uh, positive for having uh, uh, drugs uh, in their blood tests and urine tests. And uh, in the London Olympics, uh, they tested thousands of people and um, 107 athletes were disqualified from the London Olympics because of of those. So it hasn't been evenly um, uh, used. There have been many uh, Olympic uh, medalists stripped of their medals when it was found out that they were using uh, drugs. There's thousands and thousands of Olympic uh, competitors who've used performance-enhancing drugs, and a lot of it's been swept under the carpet, but there's quite a lot of exposés on, particularly during the Cold War, uh, Russia and the Warsaw Pact countries used uh, all kinds of performance-enhancing drugs and uh, tremendous, huge amounts of that. But that's only part of the scandals uh, involved in the Olympics. There's also been uh, huge amounts of politics of boycotts. And, uh, for example, it may surprise people to know there's only four countries that have been re- represented every Olympic Games since 1896. That's Greece, Australia, France, and, and United Kingdom. Um, uh, while sometimes people missed the Olympic because none of their athletes qualified, many times it was choosing to boycott. So, uh, for example, in the 1956 Melbourne Olympics, Netherlands, Spain, Switzerland refused to attend because of the Soviets' repression of Hungarian uh, uprising. Uh, there was also Cambodia, Egypt, Iraq, and Lebanon boycotted because of the Suez Crisis War with Britain and France. The People's Republic of China boycotted the 56 Olympics because Republic of China um, uh, was participating. And from 1972, uh, huge numbers of African countries threatened to boycott unless South Africa got banned and Rhodesia, which was done. And so South Africa and Rhodesia were banned from the Olympics in the 70s and the 80s. And uh, South Africa, right until 1992, was uh, excluded from the Olympics. And... uh, Then there were attempts to ban New Zealand from the Olympics on the grounds that they had uh, played rugby with South Africa. (laughs) That was uh, uh, one which, uh, fortunately, New Zealand was not banned on those grounds, although there was a lot of threats. And um, for the Montreal Olympics, 20 African countries um, joined by Guana and South America and Iraq threatened to withdraw um, because of the participation of um, New Zealand, who was not South Africa, but they played rugby with South Africa, which wasn't an Olympic sport at that time. 
Shockingly, in the 1976 Montreal Olympics in Canada, the Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, that's the father, of, apparently, of the present Justin Trudeau in Canada, uh, he excluded the Republic of China, Taiwan, Free China, from the Olympic Games because he was wanting to pander to the Red Chinese. And shockingly, since then, the Olympics from um, uh, Republic of China, Free China, have frequently been discriminated against and not allowed to participate or only allowed to participate like in the Los Angeles Olympics of 84 if they uh, used the name Chinese Taipei and had a special flag and different anthem uh, because Red China didn't want to have Free China recognized. And to think that so many countries and the Olympic Committee fell over themselves to appease the Red Chinese in this is shocking. During the Cold War, uh, the height of the Cold War, 1980, the United States and 65 other countries boycotted the Moscow Olympics uh, because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And uh, so in retaliation, the Soviet Union and 15 Warsaw Pact countries boycotted the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. So there's been a huge amount of uh, uh, politics involved in it. And uh, because of uh, Beijing protesting against uh, any body's connection with the Republic of China or because of people objecting to China's oppression of the people in Tibet, Tibet uh, you would get more politics coming in. But it seems the Olympic Committee falls over themselves to appease Red China or any communist for that matter. And we've seen all kinds of intriguing Olympics that have taken place. But what we have seen over and over again is politics interfering in what is meant to be a, a sport to bring nations together, that it's better for the nations to come together in sports than to come together uh, in war. And uh, you would have thought that sports could be separate from politics, but the Olympics have always been very much tied in with politics and uh, the boycotts, for example. Just think of the hypocrisy that in the 70s and 80s, while South Africa and Rhodesia were denied participation in the Olympics, and yet Red China, uh, could take part. And uh, Saudi Arabia, where no women were allowed to participate in their teams, for example. And uh, with all the uh, slavery being done by so many countries and so many communist countries, and yet they can march under their flag, like the Communist Party of China's flag, the Soviet Union, when they were about no problem. But free countries, pro-Western countries, Christian countries, like South Africa and Rhodesia, who were fighting for their lives against communism, were not allowed, or the Republic of China. So we can see there's, there's a lot of paganism, there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of politics, there's a lot of boycotts, and we need to understand these backdrops because this is what the Olympics really are. In many ways, it's has moved from the original goal. Now, of course, the original original was professional. But from 1896, Olympic athletes were meant to be not professional, but amateurs. And, of course, that fell apart in so many ways because... From the Soviet bloc, they put the entire power of the state behind lifting up this. So this is a major propaganda event. And they would uh, be selecting children uh, early on, uh, uh, like Nadia Komenetsky from Romania from age four. She was taken away from her family and brought up just to be an Olympic gymnast and to win, as she did so spectacularly in the 1972 Munich Olympics. 
and uh, uh, they had no life uh, outside of whatever their, their given sport was. And so you had the whole state apparatus choosing who's best. And so while the Western uh, participants were amateurs, the ones from the communist bloc were all totally professionals by every definition. Well, somewhere along the line, they'd just thrown out the requirement for maybe they felt they couldn't evenly uh, administer it. Uh, but now the Olympics have become the realm of professionals. Again, it, it's no longer any pretense of being amateur athletics and uh, having a good spirit about it. Now it's um, a lot of money, a lot of government uh, taxpayers' money behind many candidates as well, and a tremendous amount of, of course, product placement, um, advertising, promoting sponsors, and so on. So the Olympics, um, I think, have gone through quite a few metamorphoses. The one constant seems to be the pagan worship which really underlies a lot of it. And it seems to be that right now we've got in the Olympics so much politics and so much uh, commercialization that I don't know that the Olympic spirit that was envisaged in 1896 of trying to bring about a Christian Olympic Games freed from its uh, pagan origins before where it's all amateurs. I don't know that that has even had a chance. And we can only be grateful for those Olympic participants, those athletes who have principles and who are trying to give honor to God and who are trying to do their best in a very hostile, anti-Christian environment. But it's important that we know some of the story behind the Olympics. So back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And um, yeah, a bit slow on the mute button there. Sorry about that, folks. I was looking at um, Peter's sort of prompted me um, with his talk of the Olympics and talk of uh, the politics surrounding it, he'll probably have a few things to say about this. There's a Wikipedia page, South African Rebel Tours, and uh, this was a series of seven cricket tours staged between 1982 and 1990. They were known as the Rebel Tours because the international cricketing bodies banned South Africa from competitive international cricket throughout this period because of apartheid. As such, the tours were organised and conducted in spite of the express disapproval of national cricket boards and governments, the International Cricket Conference and international organisations such as the United Nations. The tours were the subject of enormous contemporaneous controversy and remain a sensitive topic throughout the cricket-playing world. That's the opening paragraph of the Wikipedia page entitled South African Rebel Tours. What can you tell us about this part of South Africa's history, Peter? I remember Mike Gatting in the late 80s leading a tour over there and it was all over the news and how awful it was and I didn't know much about it then. Um, how was it viewed in South Africa? Well, South Africa took it very seriously because um, I think similar to Australia and New Zealand, sports is very important in South Africa. In fact, I can say that everything that was done against South Africa during the Cold War and the terrorist war was generally pretty ineffective. But the sports boycotts, that hurt. And so there were economic sanctions, not a problem. We just manufactured more things ourselves. There was the arms boycott. Not a problem. Our arms corps start to produce better weapons than uh, than the rest of the world to the point that we start to get the Americans buying South Africa's uh, G5s and G6s, the 155mm howitzers as the best field artillery. Even uh, the American Apache, um, uh, taken from South Africa's um, uh, Roy Cut, uh, our um, 
attack helicopter uh, became uh, what the Americans call the Apache. So the, the arms boycotts didn't work. We just uh, improvised. And uh, in fact, none of the terrorism, uh, the strikes, the uh, different attacks and boycotts worked except the sports boycott. And in 1992, when South Africa's South Africans had a referendum on abolishing apartheid and uh, handing over one man, one vote type elections, the majority of the white electorate in South Africa said they voted yes in this referendum to effectively give the government a blank check to uh, move towards one man, one vote without a qualified franchise or anything like that was because of the sports. They wanted to take part in the Barcelona Olympics in 1992, and they wanted to get back to rugby tours with Australia and New Zealand and so on. And so it was the the carrot of the um, uh, participation in these sports events and the stick of sports boycotts that actually had South Africa, after we'd won all the battles, we'd defeated militarily the Cubans, the Soviet weaponry, and everything else that was being thrown at us uh, on the border and in Angola uh, during the wars there, um, none of that moved South Africa. It's the sports boycotts. Isn't it amazing how people will give up their freedoms for a, a game, for sports? That's how seriously many people take it. So I, I must say our enemies knew what they were doing when they targeted the sports of South Africa. You would have thought sports are above politics, but I'm sorry to say sports are very much abused by politics. And you can see that even now, how, for what reason is an Olympic athlete who's won standing on the podium having to wear a mask? I mean, this COVID cult masquerade business, even coming into sports, it just shows what's going on at the Olympics. It's it's very much uh, games and circuses. It's bread and circuses, distract the masses, uh, completely distract people from the real important things that are taken on. And if you can just keep people focused on the sports um we'll steal the country from behind them and they won't even notice that kind of thing. So, yes, sad to say, the sports boycotts were the only thing our enemies did that actually upset and concerned South Africans. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And, yeah, folks, uh, South Africa are extremely successful at sport. Uh, they've got... Uh, uh, a rugby team that's won many Rugby World Cups. They've got uh, a cricket team that's done similar. Um, and so you can see how seriously the uh, South African people take their sport. And I found that a very interesting story. I was unaware of that. One thing I wanted to ask you, Peter, because I saw I don't really follow athletics. I don't follow any sports these days. I used to watch a bit of soccer, uh, football, we call it in the UK. Um but I saw, obviously, pictures that you see on when you're looking for other things on the internet, going through the news, people stood on podiums wearing masks. Well, presumably, these people weren't wearing masks when they were, uh, you know, competing in the sport they got the medal for. Otherwise, it would have impeded their breathing and they wouldn't have won. Um, did you notice that? I mean, it, the hypocrisy here, it's amazing. I did notice that. And what's also extraordinary is how in school sports, for goodness sakes, they're forcing kids who are competing to wear masks. Now, at the Olympics, they didn't, but I'm, I'm sure they were trying to. <laughs> it's uh, unbelievable. Uh, and even to think that at the last minute, they even wouldn't allow spectators in the stands. You know, what's the whole point of the Olympics if you're not going to allow spectators in the stands? Just think how many businesses have been destroyed, how many enterprises, how many people who would be having the concessions. And there's so much involved. Olympics cost a lot, and you've got these big stadiums, but then you're not allowed to put people in them. And then 
the competitors, okay, they don't have to wear masks while they're competing, but they must wear masks when they're standing on, on the podium. It's, it's theater. It's propaganda. This is unbelievable. Um, I call it the COVID cult lockdown lunacy, pandemic, scamdemic, plandemic, paranoia, panic, propaganda. We need to call these things what they are because uh, it's a charade. And, well, I like to call it the masquerade. Back to Andrew. Yeah, it is amazing. And, and folks, I was just thinking about this. All of the, I can't think of any of these sports, you know, um, maybe sort of things like the show jumping. But if you're looking at running and what have you, they're all, you know, bunched up together. So I would uh, imagine most of these sports, they're actually closer to each other when they're competing and not wearing a mask than they are when they're on the podium. So it's so obvious that this was done to try and normalise um, into acceptance the use of masks. Because the other thing that they could have done, if there was a genuine problem, they could have just had the podiums, um, you know, bronze, silver, gold, you know, just, just put each one a little bit apart from each other. This six feet or whatever nonsense that they've been, you know, throwing at us. But that being said, um, what is the current... We've got about 10 minutes left, and um, it's worth now exploring anything you'd like to bring up, Peter. But initially, I'd just ask you um, what it's looking like in South Africa at the moment with regard to lockdowns, with regard to vaccines, the, the pressure that's being put on with them, mm. the, the whole COVID situation. How could you sum that up for us at the present time? Well, the COVID cult is strong with our government. They they do anything that the uh, Chinese and the Wuhan Health Organization tell them to do. Uh, so at the moment, we must wear masks at any time, at all times, outside, in any public place. Well, on principle, I don't. And uh, so, for example, just on Monday, we had a major outreach, which was a public holiday in South African National Women's Day. In the last 26 years, we've been having outreaches um, on Women's Day into shopping malls and so on. And um, this last Monday, we had uh, uh, seven shopping malls and five traffic light distributions. And I didn't go for the shopping malls because I knew that the restrictions there are tighter. So I went for outdoors along the Seapoint Promenade and at the traffic lights. I didn't wear a mask any time during the four hours of the outreach. Um, and I even approached police and Metro police and traffic police and gave them uh, tracts, gospel literature in their hands. And they thanked me and, and nobody said I need to put on a mask. And so while most people are wearing it, there's quite a bit of resistance. A lot of us aren't. And uh, in many ways, we are grateful that we have an inefficient government because in Australia or uh, in New Zealand, we would have been in much more trouble. They're far more efficient and they, they in fact, clamp down so much more. We've got ongoing violence in different parts of this country, obviously. We have to be in condition orange, ready to respond to violent attacks muggings, stonings on the road. And I mean, this is normal life over here. But we've got generally more religious freedom and more freedom of speech and freedom of thought, even though they put ridiculous rules like you've got to wear masks at all times. There's a lot of resistance. A lot of people just don't do it. And uh, you can't have religious service as well. You know, many of us still do. And so in many cases, I must say, uh, if you if you have to choose between an efficient communist government and an inefficient communist government, obviously an inefficient one's better. So uh, we, we're grateful for these small mercies. And the most shocking thing about on the go right now is we're heading towards our municipal elections. Now, midterm elections in South Africa's municipal elections, and they are due now for October. And in fact, they've been due for the latest possible time in accordance with our constitution. 
It's been five years since the last uh, um, municipal elections were held. This is way overdue. We're over time. And this, this, uh, the government has now gone to the constitutional court to try and have it postponed uh, to next year. And they're saying because they're afraid of COVID breakouts with people voting, which is absolute nonsense. And the main reason is because the people in this country are horrified and shocked at the failure of government to have prevented or dealt with the massive, devastating looting sprees, devastation of over 40,000 businesses and uh, hundreds of thousands of jobs and 50 billion rands worth of uh, looting um, uh, and devastation of public uh, property, 200 shopping centers destroyed, uh, 50 schools destroyed, over 1,000 uh, automatic teller machines, bank machines uh, that have been uh, uh, looted and broken open and so on. So the, the looting spree where the police and army stood by normally doing nothing. The same police and army who were beating people up and attacking people and shooting people for breaking lockdowns or for not wearing masks or to get them off beaches stood by and did nothing when there was real threat, real damage to life and property. And hundreds of people died during these so-called riots, which were more like looting sprees. And uh, so the police and army who could turn out in their thousands to keep people off beaches and walking their dogs and uh, running for exercise and so on during lockdowns, they somehow couldn't protect lives and property when it came to looting sprees. So this government is at an all-time low in terms of public uh, tolerance, and they are postponing the municipal elections for no other reason than the fact that they know that a lot of people right now are going to vote against the ANC communist government, and therefore um, they're trying to postpone it, hoping there'll be a few other distractions in between. People forget about the failure by the time they have the illegal late elections next year. I hope that the Constitutional Court doesn't accept it, but uh, the odds look right now that our government's postponing our elections just to be able to get people to forget uh, what a disaster they've been this year. Uh, Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And the interesting thing, folks, we've talked a lot on this show, as other people have mentioned, you know, the draconian nature of what's going on in Australia, as Peter said, they've got a more efficient government. It's also because it's their winter. So, you see, they can get away with saying, oh, COVID, it spreads more in the winter and what have you. And we're coming up to ours in Europe and in America and what have you in the not-too-distant future. But uh, according to um, Google, I typed in, when is South Africa's winter? A little box at the top. Winter 21... Winter 2021 in Southern Hemisphere began on Monday the 21st of June and ends on Wednesday the 22nd of September. So Peter is right in the middle of that in South Africa, but you're not seeing the same level of um, brutality from the police and the government on forcing people to get vaccines and what have you, simply because uh, they have an inefficient government over there. And so we talk about that a lot, but in some cases, when you're trying to do a worldwide... um, you know, pandemic on someone, then if you have an inefficient government, it could actually work in the uh, people's favour rather than against them as it's been working in all these other countries. Uh, what can you tell us, Peter? Obviously, we talked about the recent riots. We did an emergency broadcast on it. I understand that's died down, but have there been any knock-on effects for you or people you know personally with regard to, say, the supply chain, any, you know, lack of, of, of essential goods or services? Back to you. Yes. Well, prices have escalated dramatically. Pharmaceuticals, yes. (laughs) Um, Almost anything. We just had a massive hike in our 
petrol prices, which is mostly tax anyway. We literally pay more tax. The government gets more out of every liter of fuel that gets sold in, uh, in the petrol companies or, or the petrol station. So um, we've seen prices rising. There's a lack of supply of a lot of things. There's massive lines of uh, cars waiting for hours and sometimes days outside some petrol stations in KwaZulu-Natal to get fuel because there's shortage of fuel, there's shortage. And there's uh, huge amounts of food feeding programs to the uh, underprivileged that can't take place because the main supply warehouse uh, uh, Food Forward SA uh, got looted uh, and they supplied 4 million meals a month around the country and that got totally destroyed. And so... uh, 1,400 of the NGOs, depending on that, uh, have no food supplies to distribute. So the knock-on effect's been huge. The prices have been huge. There's a lot more people unemployed. And so the the uh, colossal catastrophic consequences of this kind of communist chaos and criminality and uh, looting sprees with a failure of the criminal justice system to adequately deal with this at all, uh, the knock-on effect is huge. We see it. We have, we're all affected. We know people who've lost jobs. We know people who've got no services, people who there's no shop or a petrol station in their whole community anymore, and they've got to travel further afield and things like that. So, yes, um, of course, it's not that these were unintended consequences. This is probably the goal that the Marxists had. They, they use what they call constructive chaos in order to advance their globalist agenda. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And folks, you'll be aware uh, from listening to Peter for as long as he's been on uh, doing these shows, collaborating with 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 me. Um, prepping is a way of life in South Africa. It's not a new thing um, because of the nature of the uh, infrastructure they've got there. The fact that things go down all the time and 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 different things like that. So they've been able to stay ahead of the curve as a necessity because that's part of it people have their own generators because they can't rely on you know the electricity grid and things like that you get blackouts all sorts of things going on all the time that's the the benefits of um you know we were told by the international community that uh, you know we had to get rid of apartheid and it would be such a benefit well now you can look at south africa back in the 80s when they what was earlier than that didn't they they did the first heart transplant in the world and um you don't see much of that going along now do you uh, peter Oh, gee, yes. Um, in the 1960s, we pioneered heart transplant surgery in Cape Town, uh, Dr. Christian Bernard. Well, he trained uh, Dr. Christopher Not Craig as his um, uh, understudy, who is then, after the death of uh, Dr. Chris Barnard, the most experienced and uh, capable heart transplant and heart-lung transplant person in the world. Well, then the ANC government just put a moratorium suspension on all transplants they said oh this is just luxury um uh, uh, surgery for whites so uh, we need to rather concentrate in, on primary health care and they they cancelled the entire transplant uh, surgery just by arbitrary fiat by government and so dr christopher craig moved to oklahoma city i've stayed in his home in oklahoma he's uh, working for the oklahoma university and uh, What's a transplant surgeon meant to do? A highly specialized one if you've got a moratorium on transplants for several years. So we lost him like we've lost many hundreds of thousands of other specialists who've benefited other parts of the world. But Many top South African leaders in many fields have immigrated all over the world. And so our country has been impoverished. And every one of these skilled people leaving the country 
leaves something from 12 to 20 unskilled laborers uh, unemployed. So uh, unemployment has catastrophically increased under ANC's government because we have lost something like 3 million whites have left South Africa since um, 1994, since Mandela's um, inauguration. And as a result, every year that the ANC has been in power, which is 26 years, they've added another million to the unemployed ranks. Now we've got over 30 million unemployed. In 1994, because of sanctions, boycotts, terrorism, strikes, and so on, we had 2 million unemployed. Well, now we've got 30 million unemployed. So, you know, this is what communist, socialist, interventionist, top-down state kind of uh, interference in the economy does. It adds to unemployment, which adds to unrest. And these unemployed can then be mobilized for things like riots, strikes, boycotts, uh, looting sprees, and so on, which erode the economy even more. And this is the thing, as, as we've discussed in the previous program, the very policies of the left create the very problems they complain about. Back to you, Andrew. They do indeed. Um, the government is not your friend, uh, as Paul English says. The words that you've got to beware of is when the government says we're here to help. Um, and this is what I think mm. so many people around the world are waking up to. And they've been waking up to before this COVID business. And I think that that's why they launched this worldwide op, because too many people are waking up. They're not going to tell you that. There's even a case where... Um, I don't agree with rioting or what have you, but there was, I wouldn't necessarily say it was that, but it's very difficult to see what it was. But there was a big protest outside a BBC radio studio this week. Um, but I couldn't find any reports of it on the BBC in the mainstream UK media. I could only find a report on Russia Today. So why aren't they telling us that huh. their people are upset about it? Oh, they don't, want, they don't want you to know that people are upset about it because then you might say, well, actually... I can legitimately be upset about these COVID business. I don't want to have a vaccine. I don't want to have a test. I don't want to isolate. I don't want to wear a mask. I'll, I'll look after myself, thank you very much. And if anyone wants to do those things, it's their right to do so in the same way it's my right not to do so. But they don't want people to know that they're not alone in uh, protesting this tyranny. So, Peter, your final comments, then please let people know where they can find your work and how they can contact you. Yes, thank you. It's so important that we resist. We've we've got to have a mental resistance. We've got to have a backbone. Uh, we cannot bend. We cannot bow. We cannot uh, give in to the new world order. Uh, civilizations at stake. Freedoms at stake. Uh, Christian faith is at stake. We uh, faith, family, our futures at stake. And so it's so important for us to know the truth and for us to speak up for the truth and to stand up and to refuse to be deceived and refuse to be coward and to be intimidated into silence and compliance. Uh, so it's so important that we support alternative news media sources like this, that we home educate our children, that we invest in books, that we invest in our mind. We need to think, we need to fight, we need to speak out. And uh, when I say fight, I'm, I mean in the intellectual uh, way. We, we are, of course, not revolutionaries. We are for reformation, not revolution. We resist violent revolution, the whole Marxist agenda. And we believe there's a better way of doing it. But through education, through persuasion, through prayer, uh, through faith, uh, we need to be involved in making our societies a better world than this. We don't want George Orwell, 1984, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley type of uh, future that's dystopian. Uh, that is not a future we want. What we want is faith and freedom, Christian civilization. And so we need to get back to the Bible. We need to get back to God. We need to be rebuilding our societies getting to know our neighbors and, and networking with other freedom-minded people. So my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za. 
peter.frontline.org.ca and our mission website www.frontlinemissionsa.org frontlinemissionsa.org and I've got pictures on there of the riots, the looting and other incredible things going on in South Africa. So if you want to visualize some of what we've been talking about, visit frontlinemissionsa.org. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Fantastic, interesting information as always. Folks, you have been listening to The Real Story Behind the Olympics. Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I'll, of course, be back with you tomorrow. And until then, folks, thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. And bye for now.